Hello and welcome back to the second part of this Master Investor podcast uh, with me, Jonathan Davis, and Terry Smith, the CEO of Fundsmith and manager of the Fundsmith Equity Fund since 2010, when the fund was launched. Since then, it has grown through a combination of strong performance uh, and annualised compound return of 16% per annum, which is pretty remarkable, and continued growth in assets as more and more investors have joined the fund to the point now where the strategy now runs to £28 billion in sterling. In this second part of the podcast, we continue our discussion about where we are in the markets, looking at some historical parallels, including the 1970s, and also look at how the Fundsmith Fund has been behaving and what Terry Smith has been doing to manage his way and the fund's way through what has been a very difficult first six months of the year. So, well, let's talk about the Fundsmith then, the, the fund. Uh, as you say, it's not been a good half year. You're down 16, 17% or something like that. I kind of the exact number at the moment, but as of today. Yeah. And uh, unusually, that is worse than the index uh, which you compare yourself to, which is the MSCI World index. And uh, you said very fairly that it was inevitable at some point you would have an underpin because you have actually outperformed in every calendar year since launch, I think, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. So, but, but uh, what's, what's... It's bound to come to an end, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, who knows? But, uh, you know, by the end of the year, you might have made it all back and then you'll have another calendar year. But no, no, have no, to... no, then, then you can accuse me of burning, burning mail. It's good, good, good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to go some to get it all back by the end of the year. If you fall in seventy percent, it's a tall it's a tall order, but you never know, do you? You could be up twenty five percent or something from here. But anyway, so just decompose for us exactly what's happened. I mean, how far that is down to valuations, how far down to uh, underlying performance. Uh, I mean, it's almost all down to valuation, Don. I mean, if you if you look at what's happened in, in valuation, our free cash flow yield, which is what we tend to use just because we think it's the best as it happens, which is the free cash flow stuff that's produced, divided by the market value to give you a yield. And you know what it is. It's like taking the PE and inverting it. So a PE of 10 would be a 10% yield. Uh, we don't use PEs because we think earnings are easier to fix than cash, basically, yeah. which is pretty much never to be the case. That's gone uh, basically back to where it was in 2017. So we've lost five years of valuation progress on the portfolio in six months, which is quite a lot, actually, um, I would suggest to you. So it's almost all down that. Look, we've had some individual stock events in there, uh, which have been unhelpful to it, but a couple, basically, which is uh, Meta and PayPal, which have been unhelpful in there. But the, uh, where you could say, oh, actually, there is something fundamental going on in the business here. It's not only valuation. In fact, in one case, I think it's not valuation at all, which is the Meta or Facebook one, where it's, it's a, frighteningly, for me, it's a value stock now. I actually find that quite yeah. scary. The reason we can come on to if you want, but I think you probably know what they are. But the majority of the portfolio, so nine-tenths of the portfolio, um, in terms of what they produce fundamentally, you know, as you see, I, I say in now half the letter, if these were our family businesses and uh, we wholly owned them and we didn't have a stock market to worry about, would we be sitting there at the end of the six months wringing our hands about sort of uh, nine-tenths of them? No, I think we'd be saying to the management, good. I think we'd also be saying to them, do you think you can keep that up? <laughs> I think they look very uncomfortable around about that point of the proceedings, but there's been nothing really to, to pin it on in fundamentals. It's really been about valuation in the six months. Right. Yeah. 
So whereas over the last five years we've had this, or longer perhaps, we've had this sort of double whammy of companies performing well, or at least as well, and then the valuation increased, that can't go on forever, essentially. No, 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 but we've always said it's finite and reversible. Um, and we've never yeah. really liked it all that much for that reason. It's uh, We like performance that comes from the companies selling more stuff, preferably at slightly higher prices, and keeping yeah. the costs under control to get some operational gearing. And somehow, magically, by this wonderful thing that happens, we have companies that are worth more, isn't it great? And we like that to come along. And if we if we could wave a magic wand, we'd just like that every year from our companies, and we'd be very happy with it. But we had a tailwind for a period, and now we've had a very sharp headwind suddenly, you know? Yeah. So I remember when I first talked to you about the time of the launch of the fund, and uh, I can't remember what the exact number was, but the uh, the free cash flow year was something around five and a half or six, was it? Or maybe even six. more? I can't remember. Six. 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 Yeah. Six. My calculation now, says 6.1%. Yeah. Okay. Well, that obviously was a time when markets were certainly in retrospect very cheap and possibly not even in retrospect. But what many people don't know is that you... You have followed the Fundsmith style of investing before 2010, when you were managing the pension fund for Tullet Prebon, was it, or Colin Stewart, I don't know which one it was. And, and how did that one perform I mean, over the period? Because that included, presumably, the period between the tech bubble bust and, uh, and the global financial crisis. Indeed, uh, and, and it expanded the global financial crisis. So, I mean, the period when I was investment advisor was 2003 to 2014, I think. Uh, so 11-year period. And uh, we managed to compound at about twice the rate of the MSCI over that period. I'd need to go back and look up the numbers to give an exact view. But roughly speaking, it was about 14 plays 7 is what we managed to do. It was exactly the same strategy. Uh, we never owned more than 20 equities. It was a pension fund, so we could have a more concentrated portfolio over that period. We turned over about 3% per annum, uh, which, funnily enough, is exactly what we just turned over in the first half of this year. So we've got a slightly higher turnover at the moment uh, going on there. Um, and uh, we started out with a, with a free cash flow yield, if my memory serves me well, of about 8% at the beginning of that period. And it dropped probably to somewhere around about five or six by the end of that period. So again, we had this. And I think to give you some statistics on the current situation, I, I haven't got the, the exact numbers to mind on the page, but I'll go back and have a go at it if it's of interest. But where I reckon when we started Fundsmith, the free cash flow yield on our portfolio was 6.1%. And I reckon the long bond, uh, the 10-year bond I'll take for this, was 4.6% uh, yield to redemption, which is a multiple of 1.32 times. We were there. And I reckon today our free cash value is about 3.7%. I say about because at half year is a bit more difficult to judge because of seasonality, but it's certainly at least that. It might be a bit better, actually. And the long bond, when I look just now, is, is yielding 2.8%, which is a multiple of 1.32 times. Right. So we might be onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but the, also, of course, I mean, the rate of inflation has moved around a little bit over that period as well, right? So you would expect when inflation comes down, you would expect the, the free cash flow yield to come down as well with it. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, in, in the kind of businesses you're owning anyway, not not all businesses. But, but let's come on to that, the impact of inflation on, on the companies you own. Um, I mean, you covered that in the shareholder letter and so on to some extent. And we've seen some results uh, in the last couple of weeks of companies like Unilever being able to say they put their prices up by 11%. But it's a case of pricing power meeting sort of top-line growth. Is that right? Is that how this kind of works in an inflationary period like this? I mean, the way it works is a bit like this. If you can put your prices up in line with or even slightly over inflation, that's obviously good. 
Um, it typically doesn't have a particularly good effect on uh, volume from the elasticity yeah. of demand um, that you encounter. And the degree of elasticity, it's a vast oversimplification to saying, you know, the more basic the goods, the more elastic it is and so on, because uh, it's, if only life were that exact, but there's an element of that, obviously. The problem is that when you look at our, I always call it our hierarchy of how we think companies best deliver growth in their real value, our number one aim is to have volume growth, uh, sell more of the stuff whatever the stuff or the service is. Number two is pricing power because um, it, it's finite. It can build uh, an umbrella for competitors. In this case, it would be you know, trade down lower quality brands or own label and so on. And, um, and typically, the price-led stuff does, uh, in the end, run out of road. We've seen companies that have produced price-led strategies like Procter & Gamble in things like razor blades and so on uh, come unstuck in the end. Uh, so we don't particularly like it, but it's better than not having it. But the way I would explain it is this. I would use PepsiCo, which just reported, which we also own. PepsiCo showed 13% revenue growth, of which 12% was priced. So actually, that's quite, they managed to eke out 1% volume growth. It's quite good considering all of that. But let's imagine for a moment that you owned one share in Pepsi and it was worth a dollar, right? And that for a dollar, you could buy a Pepsi. Right. And let's imagine that after uh, all of this, your share in Pepsi had tracked the revenue line, which is you know, quite a big assumption, but nonetheless, let's just have it for a minute. And so my dollar share is now a dollar 13 cents, and a Pepsi has gone up to a dollar 12 cents. Mm. I'm not actually very much richer, am I? <laughs> but it's better than the alternative. It's better than actually, I only managed to put up prices by 5%. In many ways, what I'm saying here is. Uh, not the best we can expect, but what we can generally expect here are announcements of that sort from companies of the sort we own, that they are managing to hold on to real value during this period and protect themselves and you against inflation. Some of them will do better than that. I no doubt some of them will do a bit worse as well. But that's kind of, I think, it comes back to my there is no alternative thing. That's sort of about the best we can hope for, I think, is that we manage to hold the real value of, of our wealth during this period through these people's ability to apply pricing power. You know, we, that's probably the best average result we can get. And the average company will probably do quite a lot worse than that. For sure. Uh, but of course, that by definition, therefore, must uh, assume that they can maintain their margins, right, to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with the very top of the, of the sure. P&L account. No, no, I understand. We've got, yeah, we've got, got to anticipate that further down the P&L account, all of that doesn't, and more doesn't disappear in gross margin contraction from input costs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so from what you've seen so far in the second quarter reporting from the companies you own, and maybe what you're expecting, um, obviously, you don't rely on what analysts are saying. <laughs> Uh, estimates necessarily, because <laughs> they don't always have a very good track record. What can you say about what uh, the performance so far from what you've seen in terms of announcements? So far, um, I mean, the uh, the performance so far is, I would say, better than most people out there feared, including probably me, uh, I would say, insofar as we have seen companies able to apply pricing power. We've seen some margin pressure, but not something that uh, where all of the price increase has been taken out uh, by cost input from companies. And so <laughs> this is a very early stage. At this stage, I would say, well, this looks sort of tolerable. Um, but of course, you know, we may well sail into an awful lot worse. I mean, other things are the digital advertising market is one that we need to be wary of because we've got tech and, um, and quite a large part of our tech is online advertising. And there's no doubt there is some pressure there. 
At the moment, again, that doesn't feel too bad. Uh, you know, we're seeing modest growth or modest shrinkage in it, you know, in the sort of anything from up a couple of percent to down four or five percent, not not big drops. I suppose I fear that that may be worse and that digital advertising may be as easy to switch off as it was to switch on. Uh, and that may become more signal. The other thing is tech, although I think it's a good sector, and I think, you know, we may see some bargains beginning to emerge here. Probably one of the things that people are not ready for a bit is the degree of cyclicality that now exists in tech. Um, that uh, it's become such a large part of, of our spend that it may be a bit more cyclical than it was historically. And uh, that may produce even better opportunity in due course, I think, in terms of what we've got. And things that really don't concern me an awful lot out there are things like, so if you, if you split my portfolio into three, you said you've got consumer, healthcare, and technology, which is an oversimplification, but that's it's not bad, right? I would say consumer, so far, all right, on the basis as discussed, pricing power margins. Tech, mm -hmm. uh, again, so far, all right, but I'm still mindful of digital advertising and, the, and a degree, degree more cyclical than historically. And healthcare, I'm not really concerned very much at all, actually. Um, I think that uh, we've got quite a safe-ish kind of sector out there. People who make uh, tubes to go into your body and artificial joints and so on, don't, don't feel immune because nobody's immune, but seems pretty good, actually, you know? In terms of the companies you mentioned, I mean, the Meta one is interesting. The Facebook one is interesting because, I mean, what you like are businesses that are basically very simple and stick to what they do and reliably turn out those kind of returns. And now that uh, Zuckerberg is going into the metaverse, whatever the hell that is, he's putting a lot of money of your money, effectively <laughs> shareholders' money, into something which, uh, well, we don't yet know what his characteristics are. And that, as you said, is a concern for you. And that's generally going to be a concern for you if companies go kind of exploring, <laughs> only go where no one's gone before kind of thing. It would be <laughs> <about fun. laughs> yeah. So uh, you're not yet at a point where you think that that was a mistake to get involved with, with uh, Facebook? No, I don't, I don't think we need to debate whether it's a mistake. Is a mistake, actually, because if you looked at the characteristics we desire in businesses, um, it's easy to name the, uh, the sort of financial characteristics, which is high return on capital, good operating and gross margins, good cash conversion, low reliance on debt, and so on. Uh, the operational characteristics are a bit more uh, interesting. You know, make their, name, their money from a large number of everyday repeat predictable transactions. So far, if you looked at Meta, you would go, yeah, tick, yeah, tick, uh, high returns on capital, very good uh, margins, large number, you know, two billion users. I mean, you know, that's all. Um, but then we get to the bit that you just named, which is, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to spend 10 billion pounds building that thing. <laughs> that's the characteristic that they are not satisfying here, which you've touched upon, not by using the words, but by your description, is predictability. We like businesses that are predictable. I like to be able to say with a fair amount of certainty that you'll still be using household cleaning products and personal uh, care products and food and drinks and medical equipment and devices and your uh, Microsoft operating system, et cetera, et cetera. And, and ADP will be doing your payroll and so on. Suddenly, we've got this thing that's out of left field. And I'm in one of those fund managers' dilemmas now, which you only get into when things haven't gone as you hope they would, which is they're spending the money on that. And I'm trying to get my mind around understanding that. And you might sell to just sell the darn thing, but it looks very cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in one of those terrible dilemmas now. I mean, it's probably on a, a PE I've looked this morning, but probably on a PE of about 11 at the moment. And given the characteristics of the main business, which is basically a digital advertising business, I would have said that's darn cheap. I mean, even if we're going to take 10% of the, of the advertising revenues, that's darn cheap. 
right? Yeah. Uh, but there's this metaverse thing. Now, I think that the metaverse is probably slightly more, I don't know, predictable, I can't think of a better word, than the, the science fiction nature of its description suggests. And, and I say that because they're not the only people working on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, there are other people who are very big, significant businesses who clearly think that this uh, immersive experience in which you're really there playing the game or we're really there in the same room, you and I are having a chat, is something that's going to work and they're going to be there. Of course, I don't know that that's true. I'm just saying there are other big people like Microsoft and clearly Apple is heading towards the, uh, that as well, who, uh, you know, and others out there are doing it. So it's a comfort. But I don't know that it's going to work, and I don't know for sure that this is going to be one of the winners, do I? If this thing comes down to a sort of two or two and a half horse race, do I know this horse is going to be there? I don't like betting on the outcome of races until I know what the result is. I, <laughs> I prefer the race result to be declared before I place a bet, frankly. Uh, call me old-fashioned. So look, your diagnosis is absolutely right. But um, And uh, my, I guess if you said describe your main fear, it is in sitting there looking, sometimes, and you must have done this, I'm sure anyone who's done investment long enough has done it, is you get into a value trap. Yes. Now, yes. this is either a very cheap share or a value trap. And when I know which one it is, I'll do something about it. But at the moment, I'm still sitting trying to understand which of the two it is. I mean, the only thing you can say with, with it greater certainty is, the day I sell it, it will prove that it wasn't a value trap. It will prove not to have been a value trap. I would have done it. That's sod's law, if I'm, allowed to, if I'm allowed to use that term in here. That's investment for you. <laughs> yeah. There's also, I mean, another issue with managers doing things that you're perhaps not entirely comfortable with, and you mentioned a couple of examples. Yeah. And you put in a good word for Nelson Peltz, which is uh, interesting. So t t tell us about that. Tell us about that situation. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you're obviously talking about Unilever. We've had a few things to say about where we think Unilever is misfiring in terms of, uh, of the business, which we think is uh, sad or whatever you want to call it, disappointing. Uh, Nelson Peltz has become involved. Um, I'm generally in favour of Mr Peltz's involvement. I mean, I don't have a set pattern one way or the other on so-called activists. Some of them, I think, have just got a playbook which turns up with buy shares, shout at management very publicly, get company to take on debt, buy back shares, split business, et cetera, et cetera, run away and, and trouser loot uh, and leave any, any long-term show like us sitting there going, we have one company, now we've got two. We've got a load of leverage. We've got a, a boatload of investment bankers and lawyers and accountants fees and a fragmented management team. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't always agree with uh, with Nelson. I think he proposed splitting drinks and snacks at PepsiCo, which we did not agree with, and uh, and it did not happen. And we still don't agree with him, but he didn't get his way uh, in that one. Uh, on the other hand, at Procter & Gamble, I think he did a very good job of going in there and getting the business to refocus itself on some very fundamental operational things, in particular volume growth needed to be rejuvenated. Uh, and it needed to be rejuvenated by some very fundamental, simple things. People often think that what people do in these situations involves some sort of uh, version of Rodin's The Thinker. They sit there like this, waiting for a great strategic idea. No, it's about improving the packaging. <laughs> it's about doing, you know, rejuvenating bits of the business that are very day-to-day. -day. I always say the day job isn't glamorous in what we do, and it's not in what most people do, actually. But, and he did, a, I think, a very good job at P&G. Uh, obviously, the jury is out with regard to Unilever. Um, I mean, 
those of us who are old enough I may recall that uh, Nelson and Tryon had a, an earlier adventure in the UK and Europe in the 1980s uh, in terms of trying to do this kind of thing and went home uh, proclaiming that he wasn't going to do this anymore because we weren't really capitalists and it didn't really work, <laughs> roughly speaking, and that Wall Street, Wall Street, the rules were a lot more straightforward. And I suppose I fear he may encounter that again. He may find that he's dealing with a different animal in a European corporate than he is with a uh, an American corporate, basically. Um, but I hope that I'm wrong and that he doesn't do the playbook, get it, split things, sell things, leverage things, that he does try to do operational things with them. Because we think their first task, anyone's first task, should be to make the business you've got perform as well as it can be made to perform based upon peer group type analysis and then decide what you want to do with it, not decide you want to take it apart and have bits on and take bits off. And so look, we uh, we await to see the outcome of that. Um, I mean, an event in the last week, which not many people have commented upon, and I think it does reflect upon what we were saying about Unilever, is Helios, the um, GSK over-the-counter... Spin-off, um, yeah. Spin-off, floated, and has a market capitalization a bit below £30 billion, uh, compared with the £50 billion which Unilever offered for the business. Now, that doesn't, to me, reflect well. <laughs> Indeed not. Indeed not. Because I presume we're in that situation where if I turn up Alios with forty billion pounds and offer them, I better I better mean it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Okay, so I'm now going to ask you a question which I know the answer, but I'm doing it for a, a reason, okay, which is this. If you thought that the factors which have affected your performance this year so far was going to continue for a bit longer, we well. I'm not saying they will because of the long bond and so on. But if you thought that, I mean, one option you might take would be to put some money into cash and then at least you wouldn't do as badly relative to the benchmark as you would do in absolute terms. That's one thing. And secondly, I can't help asking you about private equity because some well-known growth managers whose name I won't mention here have made a big thing out of investing in privately. And you were saying earlier, well, if it was a private company I owned, you know, I wouldn't be so worried particularly as I would be able to value it myself, more or less. So, uh, Mark my own homework. I can tell you how well I've done. <laughs> <laughs> but these are things you're never, you're never going to do, right? Notwithstanding... Yeah. The... No, like, Jonathan, we're not going to go to cash because I just don't think that's the product we're selling you. We're not selling you a market timing product. We're selling you a quality growth investment product. You yourself, as you say, you've done personally to a, to, to a degree can make decisions about that. And, and we are there with daily dealing and liquidity to enable you to do it. It's not what we're saying, right? And not, not what we're saying. So, uh, and I don't think it's our area of expertise. I'm very keen that as a firm, as a team, even if something is a valid strategy, that we don't do it unless we are thoroughly convinced we've got the capability to do it. Because it seems to me an awful lot of fund management business historically have been built on doing one of these funds, one of those, a yeah, UK fund, an income fund, an international fund, an American fund, you know, bond fund. They, they clearly haven't got the capability to do all those things well. And, um, and so I think you should limit yourself to what you can do well. And hopefully we are limiting ourselves to what we can do well. Market timing is not one of them, uh, basically. And there are a lot. I know people out there who I think are a lot better at it than we are. I'm not sure anyone's truly very good at it, but none, uh, not in my sort of experience of this. But I know people who do try to do it and have certainly got um, a sort of consistent logical approaches to to following it through and, and some instincts, it seems, as well. And I think, you know, if, if that's what you want, I'd go and invest with them, basically, and not with us. And I think that's perfectly OK. I mean, uh, does both private equity, yeah, look, I would... Um, I would like to do it, but I would do it in a completely... It would have to be in a closed-end fund, basically. Yeah. 
Uh, it can't be in an open-ended fund. We've obviously had another run-in in recent years in the UK uh, with somebody using an open-ended fund for uh, unquoted vehicles, and it predictably it didn't end well. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think the uh, the idea of making private investment is something which uh, I'm not averse to. I um, have some experience of the area. I did a, a leverage buyout of my own broking firm at Colin Stewart with uh, CBC um, and also took part in a number of transactions over time with a, a number of different companies, uh, Northumbria Water and IG Group and others, which involved private equity where we were on one side or other. So I've seen it in action quite a bit. And I think it's quite a good model in some respects for these circumstances. It's particularly a good model, I think, for a few things. One is businesses that are ex-growth. The equity market is not good with ex-growth. You know, if, if it's something which really is a high-yield bond. Yeah? The equity market doesn't really like that and doesn't know what to do with it, it seems to me. And so I think private equity is better, a better owner of those kind of businesses. Um, and I think it's a better owner of businesses that require some major surgery and restructuring as well, because it can be done without having to explain quarterly earnings to people uh, and things like that. So I think it does have some innate advantages. And plus, of course, if, I mean, I've run a business, my old college Stewart business, which was private equity owned. The really good news is, and I'm sympathetic to corporate management because I managed a couple of public companies myself who say, "Ah, oh, well, Terry, you want return on capital in the uh, in the metric for remuneration, but I'm afraid X, Y, Z wants earnings per share growth." That's <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's a bit problematic, isn't it? Uh, so, but of course, if it's private equity, you've only got one phone call to make to ask the shareholders what they what they want. Yeah, just the one phone call, right? And that's it. You can say, "What do you think about we can think of doing this? What do you think?" Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a potentially an attractive model, but it doesn't always work out that way in practice because it tends to get caught up with over over leveraging and quick in and outs and well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I in some like cases, to, yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't like to sort of row everybody up into the comment I'm about to make. Far, far from it. Because I actually encounter some very able private equity people in time. But you know, quite often the model is buy business on uh, PE of whatever it is, put a boatload of debt into it in order to buy it with other people's money, uh, own it for a short period of time, find some excuse to leverage up and pay yourself a dividend, then float it and hope that everybody's forgotten the PE that you had in the first place. Indeed. <laughs> uh, that's it. Now, yeah. obviously, I'm not a fan of that particular model. <laughs> yeah. And there's quite a few people, I think, who are out there who tend to try and operate on that. I was musing, I don't know if you saw the publicity, about the problems that the bankers who took on the high yield debt in, uh, in the Morrison's buyout are encountering. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was reading it and thinking, it's not as if you didn't have plenty of warning of what the problem was here, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you just you just got caught holding the parcel, didn't you? That's all with, with, the, with the ticking noise coming from it, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, and that of course is a risk that uh, comes up quite often in private equity. Right, we're coming to the end of our time, Terry. I decided to call this uh, to label this uh, conversation, you know, kind of roaring twenties or boring twenties, and I and I did that uh, just because it was an excuse to talk about <laughs> a couple of things from here. Number one, of course. About you, you've got no plans to retire. I mean, so you're, you're hoping to see out the 20s, are you? Would, would that be? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got absolutely no plans to retire. I uh, I mostly enjoy what we do. I mean, I, I, nobody enjoys every single thing they do, right? People go, all these people say, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, I mean, there are days when it's like having a headache, the thunderstorm, obviously, but there are, there are far more days when, when it's not. And mostly I work with people that I enjoy working with as well. Um, my colleagues of long standing, some of my colleagues of shorter standing, who I enjoy working with, and, and quite a lot of the clients as well. I, some of the clients even enjoy talking to me, which is astonishing when you think about it. <laughs> but, uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't understand that. No, I can't understand no, no, that. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, I, no, I've got no plans to retire. The great thing about investment is a number of things are proven is you can go on doing it for a very long time uh, if you wish yeah. to and you're competent to do so. But having said that, um, I always say to people, do you know what makes God laugh? People making plans. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I, absolutely. I might be retired before you manage to get off this call, for all we know, right? Um, <laughs> and so, so there are, I would assure everybody, plans in place both for the transition of the ownership of the firm to my colleagues and transition of the management to my colleagues, which I hope will give everybody the best shot that they can at continuing this after I'm not there. But I'm planning to be there, basically, and continue doing this. And if you ask me to bet, I would go Roaring Twenties. You've got to bet on Roaring Twenties. Okay, very good. Obviously not in a straight line, not linear. Oh, well, but... No, 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 no. But then neither <laughs> were the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm just so interested because, you know, you're a historian as well as an investor. And, um, you know, if we do look at the 1970, well, we all know the numbers about to get back to where the peak was, took, you know, so many years. Uh, I looked it up, the figures from Dimson and Marsh. I mean, quite extraordinary, really. If you're in bond market, <laughs> it fell 73% in real terms between 1946 and 1974. And you only got back to where you were after the war in 1993. That's UK bonds. And if you were in the equity market, well, we know what happened there. There was this sort of, if you like, the 70s. It took until 1983 to, to get back to, to where you were when it all started. So in the very worst case, it could be quite a long haul. but And that would take us through to most of the 2020s. But you don't think that. You're an optimist. You're an equity investor. So you have to be an optimist to some extent. Indeed, but, uh, yeah. Otherwise, why turn up for work? But um, the, yeah. uh, no, I would say that the converse of it is, I think, there is a, I like the Charlie Munger thing about always invert, right? And yeah. so, so if we are not facing what you describe in terms of the long period here, and we're sitting here and I'm doing a podcast with you, some joke we are, and it's all kind of looking quite good, actually. I think it will be because the sort of supply side led inflation disappeared like will of the wisp. And whilst we have got a recession induced by the interest rate policy and so on, that people will be rowing back on that very, very quickly. And we might end up with a period that looks rather more like the aftermath of 97, 98 uh, than the aftermath of 73, 75. Because in 97, 98, we had four pretty major major economies going into currency meltdown, as you recall, followed in 98 by the, um, uh, the Russian default. Yeah, that's yes. an echo, a bit of an echo. The irony of it was um, it led... Because in the year before, 96, I think it was, was when um, Alan Greenspan had made his irrational exuberance comment. Yes. And he wasn't wrong, in my view. But the interesting thing was the reaction to the crises of 97, 98 paused the rising cycle and gave us another leg yeah. to the economies and to the market. And I, I don't like betting on this because it's not the way we run anything, basically. And I, I don't think you should rely on my bets on this at all or my, my views. Of it. But if I had to bet, that's where I would place my bet. It may turn out to be a bit like that mist you see over a river in the early morning in summer in the UK. <laughs> I mean, the only other I'm parallel... I've and looked out again, it's gone. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the parallel, though, you know, might be with the pandemic itself. I mean, the, the, the recovery from that was extraordinary. Well, I mean, the roaring 20s uh, followed the Spanish flu. Yeah, exactly. 1919, I think it was, isn't it? Something yeah, like that, yeah, exactly. which killed an enormous number of people, much well, more well, than at least COVID. 50, at least 50 million, possibly 100. We will never know. Uh, we'll yeah. never know with that. But it caused people to adopt, not invent, but to adopt, because it already existed, new techniques like the assembly line. I mean, Henry Ford had already put the Model T Ford on a, an assembly line in 1913. So instead of having a shed with the car bits there and you all sort of scrabbled around and built the car standing there, 
it went past you and you did one job repetitively. And um, as you know, certainly like he cut the average time for building a Model T for from 12 hours to 93 minutes when it started up. And right. um, then we had World War One, so that didn't really matter. Right? But when they came back to World War One and we had the Spanish flu, the assembly line became the model of production, not just of cars, but of household um, consumer electrical goods and so on and so forth. And it caused a big reduction in production because of the leap in productivity and a big cut in price and a big uh, ability both from people getting employment and from the, the reduction in price to buy these goods and roaring 20s. There you go. And um, maybe we've got something similar. I mean, you know, I can remember a day when you and I would have had to have got on a train and get in a cab and, uh, and spend half a day to do this. Indeed. Indeed. And yeah. look at us now. And look at us now. Yeah. So technology and so on will... I mean, it, it's evolving very save fast. The world. As, as I was saying yeah. at the beginning, it will save the world. No, I don't think technology, but it, there's no doubt that there are potential improvements in productivity out there, I would yeah. say. And particularly, I mean, if we're talking about energy, there's lots of potential for energy technology to finally crack the problem of reliance on hydrocarbons and therefore oh, yeah. Mr. Putin. Oh, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I take a peripheral interest in matters of that sort. I mean, we don't invest in them in the fund, but you know, I'm interested in things like the hydrogen fuel cell powertrain, which I think is a very interesting piece of technology, uh, basically. It suffers from the handicap that uh, there's no infrastructure to supply the hydrogen. <laughs> Whereas yes. a battery-powered electric vehicle has a thing called the grid already there to do it. Uh, yes. But it's still, I mean, these are very interesting, potentially very interesting developments. Yeah. And if the crisis gets bad enough, then you will get a reaction. People will invest in it. Even governments might put in the infrastructure and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Well, remember my price begets price statement. Indeed. Always true. There are some things you just can't produce any more of. So price definitely, you know, if we're talking about Mayfair property, price doesn't beget price, Brian Large. <laughs> There are only a few certitudes in life, indeed. One of them being that uh, we're all going to die one day. But anyway, um, that brings us to an end, Terry. That's been my conversation with Terry Smith, uh, CEO of Fundsmith. And I'm going to venture to call you a veteran of the equity markets and uh, someone who can recall what it was like in the 1970s and uh, given a good reason why we won't be going back there, at least to the same degree. So thank you very much, Terry. I'm going to take that as a compliment, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk.